ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. I've always been interested in why we sometimes like to suffer. It's no big deal to explain why people like food and sex and good company and all sorts of fun stuff. But it's a real puzzle why we often choose to put ourselves in situations that involve pain and effort and suffering. Why we like spicy foods and some of us go to movies that make us scream. Some of us train for marathons and triathlons. And I became very interested in why. This is Paul Bloom. He's a professor of psychology at the University of Toronto. And this question, why we sometimes seek pain and get pleasure from it, is the subject of his book, The Sweet Spot. But it's not just pain for pleasure's sake he's interested in. It's also pain and struggle that can lead to meaning. Consider somebody who has a maximum life of pleasure. They're hooked up to a drip of some delicious drug that just gives them this enormous high all the time. And they spend their whole lives lying on a table, maxed out on that drug. Maybe they're, you know, they're happy by definition, they're getting a lot of pleasure. But I think we could look at that and say, that's an awful life. So can some degree of pain and suffering help us live a good life? You're listening to All in the Mind. I'm Sana Kadar. Today's episode is one from our archives, and it's all about the interplay between pleasure, pain, suffering, and meaning. Can you start by explaining, do we all actually derive pleasure from some degree of suffering or pain? Are we all drawn to it? I've never met somebody who wasn't in some way or another. Now, your mileage may vary. Some people don't like horror movies at all, but they like sadomasochistic sex. <laughs> Some people don't like spicy foods, but they like, you know, high intensity exercise. Mm. We differ. And we're talking now about suffering for the pursuit of pleasure, but there's also suffering as part of deeper life projects like raising children and going to war, climbing mountains. And people differ in that too, but I think everybody has the basic impulse to do it. Yeah. Can you explain a bit more what you mean when you say pain or suffering? So when I started the book, I was interested in cases where we inflict pain on ourselves in sort of a controlled way as part of a good time, as part of a source for pleasure. But as I began to write it and think about it and read more and talk to people, I realized there's a broader notion here, which is often we choose to suffer as part of a life well lived. So some people have children and anybody who has children knows how difficult that could be and how much of a struggle, but it wouldn't be so worthwhile if it wasn't so difficult. And same for all sorts of other life pursuits. I think part and parcel of what makes for a meaningful life is putting yourself in a situation that involves some difficulty and stress and the possibility of failure. So I mean suffering both in the sort of specific sense of putting, you know, eating spicy hot foods, but also in a more general sense, making life choices that involve difficulty. Right. Okay. And it seems, on the one hand, that seems a bit counterintuitive, but on the other hand, it almost seems obvious. Like, what kind of reaction have you had to sort of the thesis you're pushing in the book? It's a nice way of putting it because in, in some sense, I'm merely reciting back, you know, old wisdom from philosophy, from religion. If you tell somebody who's a Buddhist or a devout Catholic, a good life involves suffering. Mm -hmm. They look at you as if really you're telling me this. <laughs> like we've, we've known this for a while. And so I think in some way, this is common sense. It's what people understand is sort of no pain, no gain philosophy. Mm -hmm. and, and, and we understand that we seek out pain sometimes, but I think at the same time, psychologists, philosophers, neuroscientists tend to forget about this and 
too many people kind of get caught up in the idea that we're hedonists, that pleasure is our only goal. Mm. And so I like the way you're putting it. To some extent, my argument in the book, the details get interesting, but a general argument that we seek out pain and suffering is old news. And I'm kind of, I guess, trying to bring it back. Mm. All right, let's talk in more detail about the kind of pain and suffering you're talking about, starting with benign masochism. Firstly, what is it? It's a lovely term thought up by the psychologist, Paul Rosson. He was talking about cases where we give ourselves controlled doses of pain in order to enhance our pleasure. So he was thinking of cases like when we eat spicy foods or, or put ourselves in positions where we're frightened, but in a safe way or saddened, but in a safe way. Like watching a film. Exactly. And, and everything like you have a sore tooth, you poke it with your, your tongue. You know, somebody comes up to you and says, do you want to see something disgusting? And most people will say, uh, yeah, okay. <laughs> Even though, you know, disgusting is, is, is a bad feeling. <laughs> and so I explore different theories as to why we do this. And there's, there's all sorts of answers. One answer is contrast. Mm. You know, the brain is a difference machine. And we experience things, including pleasure, not in terms of absolutes, but often in terms of differences. So one way to enhance pleasure is to proceed it with a little bit of pain. Um, my dad used to tell me this joke about the guy who was banging his head against the wall. And when he was asked what he, why he was doing that, he said, it feels so good when I stop. And that, <laughs> that sounds like a, a terrible dad joke, but, but it really does capture the fact that sometimes you fill your mouth with hot food because it feels so nice when you drink the beer. You, you, you generally put yourself in a bath that's blazing and then when it cools off, it's just blissful. <laughs> Can we talk yeah, a bit more about um, examples of this idea of contrast and why that enhances pleasure? Can you give a few more examples of that? You know, food tastes a lot better when you're really hungry. Um, just slowing down and walking feels a lot better if you're running full speed right before and you're totally out of breath. One example of this uh, I talk about in the book is visiting a Finnish sauna. People do this willingly. And, you know, if you, if you were a Martian looking at humans, you'd, you'd wonder why are they in incredibly hot rooms that cause them great discomfort? And part of the answer is when you get out of it, in this case, when you jump into a, a beautiful lake, it feels blissful. And for the most part, there's no sh better shortcut to getting bliss than to put it in the context of proceeding it with pain, mm. with some degree of pain. I think contrast is part of the story. I think there's other things that go into benign masochism. There's a feeling of mastery and control. Sometimes it feels really good to put yourself in a bad situation, knowing that you can take it, knowing that it's under your control, knowing that you're doing well in it. Another thing going on here is sometimes painful experience could lead you to lose yourself. And that's just a kind of a weird way of putting it. But sometimes um, what's in our heads is noisy and distracting and annoying. We're a constant voice over in our heads. We're conscious of our, our past, our future. We're worried. We're ashamed. We're thinking about how we're, we're coming off. And certain states, including painful states, can obliterate that. If you talk to a trained athlete about high-intensity exercise, they'll tell you that when they're doing it, they're often thinking of nothing else. Mm. And there's a pleasure to that, too. Professor Bloom says this helps explain why people engage in all kinds of somewhat painful activities, including consensual sadomasochistic sex or BDSM. 
BDSM is a funny status because you ask, you do polls as to how frequent it is. And so much depends on how you ask. So if you describe some heavy duty activity involving a lot of pain and humiliation, not many people say they're into it. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, if you ask whether people fantasize about it and are interested in it, the numbers go through the roof. The most popular book of the last 10 years is um, Fifty Shades of Grey, <laughs> which is all about it. People are fascinated by this. And so the question is, what is just a scratch? Why do we enjoy it? So one theory of BDSM, which is, again, you know, very mysterious and I think really interesting to explore, is that by the pain, the physical pain, the emotional pain distracts you from your own consciousness. It takes you out of yourself. We're very much focused on presenting yourself, ourselves in a certain way, being seen in a certain way. And it is often feels really good to have that, that go away. People in the business of studying this always like to quote a dominatrix who says, when you take out the whip, people's eyes fall upon it and they can't look away. <laughs> and it steals away all of their, all of their consciousness. I think, by the way, this is a good time to make a really important distinction that runs through my book, which is everything we're talking about here as of chosen suffering. Mm. And chosen suffering has all of these benefits and these possibilities. Unchosen suffering, the involuntary experience of pain or humiliation or anguish is as bad as everybody thinks it's bad. Mm. And there's a world of difference. So the secret sauce to all of this is control. It has to be up to you what you're experiencing. tell me about your own experience with benign masochism and losing yourself uh, when it comes to Brazilian jiu-jitsu? I tell the story of the first time I ever did Brazilian jiu-jitsu and I was substantially older and substantially out of shape. And on my very first day, I started rolling with somebody, sparring with somebody. And so for however minutes, we're bouncing around on the floor and he's trying to pull my head off my shoulders. And I realized afterwards that during that I thought of nothing else. I wasn't thinking about my book, wasn't thinking about my kids or my family, or did I look good in my uniform? And mm. was, you know, I was totally immersed in the moment. One person who studied this more than anybody else is uh, Mahali uh, Csikszentmihalyi, who sadly passed away a little while ago. And he was uh, the discoverer of the notion of flow. And a flow experience is an experience where it's not too easy and it's not too hard. If it's too difficult, it's frustrating. So what happens is it's sort of a Goldilocks state. It's difficult enough to kind of capture you. So you know you're in a flow experience if time goes by. You forget to eat, you forget to pick up the kids at school. Csikszentmihalyi talks about flow experiences of musicians, of rock climbers, of writers, of poets, of artists. He argues, I think, convincingly that a good life involves a lot of flow. And, and why does it feel so good? Is it partly because of that erasure of self thing where you're not thinking about your anxieties? You're not, you know, you're just focused. It's a good question why we like flow states. I'm not sure anybody knows for sure. It could be that we've evolved to fall into them because there's something really beneficial to find yourself in these for long periods of time. Or it could be because of the feeling of mastery that goes with it. If you're watching TV, you don't feel proud of yourself. You don't feel good about what you've done later. But if you're, you know, you're, I don't know, composing a symphony or, you know, practicing backflips or whatever, there's this feeling of, look at me, I have control over, over my situation. 
comes to painful pleasure, how we interpret the experience, whether it is in fact enjoyable and how much so, seems to depend on the order in which we experience the pain versus pleasure. I think it comes from the fact of contrast again. So the way we want it, just if you want a quick answer, is pain first. Right. We want you know, you know to have a memorable experience. You get the bad part over with. You get pain first. And then that sets the stage for pleasure. If you made the mistake of having pleasure first and then pain, you'll remember the experience later more negatively and the pleasure will not be as intense. As an example, say you're at a party and you're having a good time and it's going really well, but it ends with a really embarrassing experience. You're likely to remember the party as having been a lot worse than you would if the embarrassing thing had happened at the beginning of the night. So there's various studies done by uh, Danny Kahneman, who won the Nobel Prize for this work, finding that that this balance is critical. It's not only critical for the sort of experiences we're talking about, it's critical, say, for the stories we enjoy. So every time you see a movie or TV show or read a novel, very typically it will have the structure. Things are bad. Maybe they get worse, they get worse, they get worse, and then they get better. And that's that's the making for so many great stories to just drag us in. Mm -hmm. If you were to flip it, things start off good, they get better, they get better, but then they're awful. That would be a story, you know, you could be in some sort of art, art, artsy cinema or whatever. I'm sure there's wonderful stories like that, but, but they're not exactly what you'll take your kids to. (laughs) I guess my overall question when it comes to the section on pain and benign masochism, it's really interesting to me because I thought overall humans will do more to avoid pain than seek pleasure. But what you're saying here seems to counteract all of that. In some sense, there's kind of a paradox here. Because for what we're talking about now, now benign masochism and the like, really is the seeking of pleasure. It's people looking to have a good time. But the paradox is one way to get there is through pain. Mm. One way to get there is through pain and struggle and difficulty. And that's kind of a trick through which to maximize your pleasure. Hmm. All right, let's talk about another kind of unpleasantness. Um, can you talk me through the evidence around effort? And, and generally, humans don't like to put effort into things they don't have to. Is that right? So it's exactly right. One of the basic observations for humans and other animals is that is I think there's something called the principle of least effort. <laughs> and the idea is that, you know, if you if you were going to walk and get to the fridge and get a glass of water, you'd walk straight to the fridge. You wouldn't go outside, walk around your house twice, and then go back to the fridge. It's crazy. You, go, <laughs> you, you, you typically satisfy your goals with the least effort possible. What's cool is that you, we'll do that all the time, except when we don't, except when we purposefully choose effortful activities. And you know, people go for a walk. People lift weights. People, you, you might say there's some health benefit to that, but I, I do crossword puzzles. I spend a considerable amount of time, you know, staring at a screen, struggling with crossword puzzles. I don't do well enough to impress anybody. It doesn't make me a better person or whatever. But that's, it's just the kind of effort that's kind of fun. Mm. And the very existence of everything from Wordle to chess (laughs) suggests that we often like difficulty. Yeah. And this is different from pain in some simple sense, but, but it is a puzzle. We like what we would normally avoid. And so that's another example of what we're talking about. Yeah, I was just going to say you're, you're absolutely right about that because when Wordle is too easy, I don't enjoy it. That's exactly right. You take crossword puzzles. The ones I do, you go from Monday to Saturday and get increasingly <laughs> difficult. And I, I'm good enough to do the Monday ones pretty easily, so I don't do them. 
I do the ones that are harder. I don't do puzzles that are way too hard for me. There has to be sort of a sweet spot in between a maximally easy and a maximally hard. But but everything from wordle to puzzles to physical exercise, we seek out effort and difficulty. That's interesting. So yeah, can you explain that a bit more in terms of do we value the things that we put effort into more? So there's a few explanations for, for why effort has this appeal. One is that for whatever reason, the products of effort gain more value. So there's a lovely study done by Michael Norton and his colleagues where they had people build stuff, origami pieces or Lego structures, and then said, look, you could take home what you build or we'll give you a better version that's already been made. And people want to take home their own stuff. People develop this strange liking for things that they create themselves. They call this the Ikea effect Mm. based on the idea that we tend to like Ikea furniture that we put together ourselves. And there's a lot of research suggesting the more effort you put into something, the more value you give to it. So that's an example of sort of focusing on the outcome. We also find effort satisfying because there's a sense of mastery, of aspiring towards goals. Mm. A lot of games work that way. I think it's important to realize it's not necessarily the goal itself. It's not like all the satisfaction from Wordle comes with getting the word at the end. <laughs> I try more crossword puzzles than I finish. Mm. But struggling towards them, making incremental progress, working on them, thinking your way through, is kind of fun. That kind of relates back to the concept of flow that you were talking about in that the sort of the final product isn't necessarily the point. It's the process as well. That's exactly right. And that happens from the small scale to crossword puzzles to the large scale, like climbing Mount Everest. So people who climb Mount Everest, they want to get to the top of Mount Everest, but that's not the whole point of it. So people climb mountains and they get to the top and then they say, okay, I'm at the top. And then they turn around and go back. (laughs) It's not like there's this enormous moment of bliss and satisfaction. Mm. What we see here is it's the process. It's trying to attain the goal that's satisfying. And, um, And this is a really interesting aspect to people. Everything we're talking about now, I think, is uniquely human. I think it's universal. It shows up in every human society and only humans. Only humans take pleasure and pain. Only humans take satisfaction effort. Only humans seek out flow. Hmm. This is really helpful for me to understand why people would bother climbing a mountain or or running a marathon, because I've never understood the appeal there, but this is helping it all make sense. (laughs) And, And it goes back to what you were saying before when you asked, you know, does everybody have these appetites? And the answer is yes, but they manifest themselves in different ways. Right. And I'll tell you one thing we don't know. We don't know why some people like spicy foods and others don't. Some people like horror movies and others don't. We can't predict these different facets from people. Knowing their age, knowing their gender gives some hint. But for the most part, it's kind of mysterious right. why people have these different appetites. So it's not even related to personality characteristics that we know of? Not that we know of. You could test people on their extroversion and their agreeableness and their conscientiousness, and you just don't find huge effects. Wow. I could talk to you for an hour. As long as I don't ask the question, I can't guess whether or not you like spicy foods. <laughs> I can't guess whether or not, well, you told me you don't like running marathons. So, so I, got, I got that one, yeah, but, right. I but I, could, I couldn't guess it otherwise. <laughs> Depends how spicy, I'll tell you that. <laughs> yes. Okay. Fair, fair enough. Um, an area where a lot of us put a huge amount of effort in over our lives is our jobs, our careers. What do we know about meaningful and satisfying jobs and what we can gain from from that and why we put effort in there? So here we're shifting gears in an interesting way. We're talking up to now about use of pain and suffering and difficulty to have fun, to have a good time. But I think there's a sense in which is also part and parcel of a good life. Mm-hmm. So you look at something like like jobs and you ask people, 
what are the most meaningful jobs? You ask, you ask people, there was a study of a million people and they asked people, what do you do and how meaningful do you find it? And it turns out the most meaningful jobs are jobs like being a teacher, being a member of the clergy, being in the military, being some degree of a medical person. Mm -hmm. And for the most part, you look at the list of jobs, they're not well-paying. They're certainly not easy. Mm. Some of them aren't high status. They often involve stress and difficulty and long hours, but they are meaningful. They are valuable. While other jobs that sometimes involve a lot of status and making a lot of money, they may have other perks, but they don't give meaning in the same way. talk more about meaning because you grapple in the book with why people embark on difficult journeys or life-changing decisions, things like going to war, things like having a baby. Having a baby in particular is interesting to me, partly because I had one about a year and a half ago and I spent a lot of time thinking about, especially early on when it's really hard right after birth, you know, why do people have babies? Why do people do this? I'm, you know, in many ways I'm the happiest I've ever been, but I'm the most exhausted. So what what did you learn about the choices that we make and our motivations for it, you know, with babies and, and otherwise as well? You've summed up perfectly the, <laughs> the psychological literature on what it is to have a baby and now, now a one-year-old, which is, it's complicated. So the original studies took people with babies, young children, no children at all, and then assessed their happiness. Sometimes by just asking them, sometimes by giving them a beeper that went off at random times in the day, sometimes by asking at the end of the day, tell me about the happy parts of your life and unhappy parts of your life. And what this original research found was the people say their time that they have with their children, particularly with their young children, is not happy time. Mm. They're happy times with friends, resting, going to church, having sex, mm -hmm. but Spending time with a toddler, if you just, you know, you honestly, people just tell you different things when they're from a distance, <laughs> but they don't get them to get much happiness from it. Hmm. And these original studies found that on the whole, parents are somewhat less happy than non-parents. So this was the original wave of studies. But then things got more complicated and it turned out to be a lot messier. Fathers tend to be happier than mothers. Older parents tend to be happier than younger parents. The original studies were done in the United States in a situation where there was not much good health care mm. and the health care was very expensive. If you look at countries which have government subsidized health care, parents are much happier, often happier than non-parents. But the number one discovery, which I find interesting, given what my book is about and given what I'm talking about, is for most parents, it's not really about happiness. If I asked you, you had a child, do you think your life is, is on the whole, you know, more pleasurable jolts of, of happiness than if you didn't have a kid. In some way, you ask parents this and they say, well, that's not exactly the right question. Mm -hmm. I didn't have a kid in the same way I might, you know, take cocaine or go on a roller coaster <laughs> ride. I, I have a kid and it's meaningful. It gives meaning to my life. It gives significance and purpose to my life. It gives intimacy and complexity and struggle and difficulty. Most parents, it may not make them happy in any simple sense, but it's not that it's happiness that they're after. Having kids is an illustration to me of one of the main things I argue for in the book, which is motivational pluralism. And that's a fancy term, meaning we want many things. We do want to be happy. We want to kick of pleasure. Sure. Mm -hmm. But we also want to be good. We want morality and we also want meaning and purpose. And I think the evidence suggests having kids satisfies the meaning and purpose part of the equation. Yeah, right. And I I guess because there's a perspective, the hedonistic perspective, where if we're just seeking pleasure, then having a baby is a bad decision. 
probably, probably it's certainly not not it's not a lock as a good decision. Um, <laughs> and so, you know, maybe they, people would do better off with, you know, with cocaine and beach vacations <laughs> than having a baby. But but if I told that to a parent, they'd say that's the stupidest advice ever, because, again, life's more complicated than that. We want different things. Yeah, yeah. And and you also wrote, you know, on surveys, parents consistently say their lives have more meaning than non-parents, which I thought was lovely or awful, depending on what side of the parenting divide you sit on. Yeah, I mean, I I, I have a lot of close friends who have chosen not to be parents, um, and their lives are every bit as rich and meaningful and purposeful. Mm. They just focus on other things. I, I, I think in the end... Um, a rich and good life, and this is what the evidence suggests, requires you get meaning and purpose from somewhere. So for many of us, is our jobs. Yeah. You know, for me, I, I I have two sons, but they're they're now adults out in the world, and maybe more of my energies are to other sorts of projects. Towards the end of the book, you sort of come back to the original tension you see between hedonism and meaning, pleasure and meaning. Is there a true dichotomy? Can we have lives that have both? Yeah, so so there are studies that simply ask people, you know, how happy is your life? And they also ask people how meaningful your life is. And maybe the good news here is that the answers, or bad news for some people, I guess, the answers are correlated. So it's not that there's an essential tension between a pleasurable life and a meaningful life. On the contrary, people who have a lot of pleasure tend to have a lot of meaning. And people who have a little bit had them have a little bit. On the other hand, there are choices you make. There are cases where pleasure is at the cost of meaning and meaning is at the cost of pleasure. And I'm not that arrogant to say, okay, well, here's how you should divvy them up to have a good life. Mm -hmm. Everybody has to kind of make the choice themselves. But one of the things I try to raise in my book is the fact that we are faced with this problem. There are many things we want. Some of them conflict and we have to kind of choose the balance for ourselves. That's interesting because I, I was going to ask you, you know, are there overall ground rules that can help us when we're trying to have more of this mix in our lives? I, I have a couple of bits of advice. I'll just stick to two. One is there's a lot of evidence that trying to be happy is a mistake. There's a real connection between people who say being happy is very important to them and they try very hard and people who are basically miserable and unhappy with their lives. Now, it's complicated why there's a relationship, but it does seem like the happiest people in the world are people who don't actually try hard to be happy to do other things, and happiness comes along for the ride. Hmm. This will be a familiar idea if you listen to our recent episode on toxic positivity. And the second bit of advice, I would say, you know, finding flow in your life, learning to sort of take the time and to some extent to sacrifice to put away your cell phone and turn away from the TV and focus on something difficult, be it athletic or musical or intellectual or whatever, gives real reward to people's lives. And many people say they have no flow in their lives. And I think such lives are diminished by that. Is that is finding flow sort of about finding what you enjoy doing, a hobby, that kind of thing? It could be. There's a lot of things that are good and valuable that don't involve flow. And a lot of things that are flow activities that aren't really in some way that rewarding. But ultimately, Flow is an activity that involves immersion and difficulty. I think for many of us, it's best found in sports. It's best found in artistic pursuits. And it's best found in intellectual pursuits. Hmm. Has writing this book changed the way you approach your own life? You know, how much are you living in the sweet spot? A little bit. 
I, I, as I wrote the book, I decided to, to join a gym and not just every gym, any gym, but it was a gym, which, which has tremendous emphasis on, on weight training. And so there's like a grueling hour where we just lift weights and I hate lifting weights. <laughs> I just, and, but I decided, you know, well, time to suffer, time to, and, and you do this sort of thing because you hope to get health benefits and look better, but you also do this sort of thing. And I've come to sort of realize this because there's a satisfaction and pleasure mm. in it. And so what I've tried to do as a result of working on my book and try to do more and more is seek out difficulty, seek out struggle, seek out trouble to some extent. And if you find the right sort, I, I think it's kind of a good thing. That's Professor Paul Bloom from the University of Toronto. He's also the author of the book, The Sweet Spot, The Pleasures of Suffering and the Search for Meaning. And that's it for All in the Mind this week. Our producer is James Bullen. Sound engineer this week was Roy Huberman. I'm Sana Kadar. Thank you for listening. I'll catch you next time.